Good afternoon, gentlemen, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to our audience. This might be the last weekend I'm going to say that because it's going to get old, but it's still kind of exciting to welcome us into 2023. So we have today Brad Meltzer in the black um, and Josh Minch, who we have not met before, who um, probably could introduce himself better than I can, but I understand you're a documentary filmmaker. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. I originally met Brad, in fact, uh, when we worked on a television show together for the History Channel called Lost History, and that's how we formed uh, a friendship and a partnership, and, and writing these books together came about from that. So Brad sort of pulled me out of the work I was doing in television and uh, somehow convinced me to start writing books with him, and here we are now. Here you are now. Well, we were just discussing before we went live the many faces of Brad Meltzer, and in fact, the many pens of Brad Meltzer, because he is the author of numerous things. And yet I still remember Brad Meltzer from his very first book and his very first book tour when he appeared at Poison Pen. How long ago was that, Brad? 26 years ago. Oh my God. So we've both grown older since Full then. head of hair when I, when I first met you, Barbara. You're right, and I was blonder. <laughs> but, but anyway, it's been it's been wonderful. We've really had a glorious time walking along this path with Brett, um, and delighted that we get another opportunity. So I'm holding up the book, which is called "The Nazi Conspiracy: The Plot, Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill." And while they're going to talk to each other, at least I hope they are um, about the book, I do have a few comments maybe to just sort of warm us up, one of which would be that I think perhaps more people think about Yalta as the place where these three guys got together than they do about Tehran, which I don't think is as um, um, frequently brought up. So what interested you in Tehran? Was it because of the Nazi plot or was it because it was the first time they got together? Yeah, we found this story. Um, I don't. I don't. I think Josh and I agree that the internet is not good for many things uh, these days. But in this case, we found this story in a, in a small internet story that ran, and it was about a secret plot to kill FDR, Churchill, and Stalin at the height of World War II. And I remember sending it to Josh. I mean, like, is this true? Is it not? And I always trust Josh to like actually tell me when things are true or not. He's my my grounding in reality. And, um, and it was a true story. And, and just to set the stage where we are and, and is uh, in 1943, this, as you said, is the first time where the big three, where Churchill, Stalin and FDR are coming together. They're meeting in Tehran, Iran of all places. And we can talk about why after. Um, but obviously everyone's really excited. Here comes the president of the United States, their first meeting, all of them together. And as they get to Tehran, the president's motorcade is of course going down the center of the city. And everyone's craning their neck and waving, and there's a guy in the, you know, president waving back. But what we quickly find out is that that person inside the car is not the president at all. It's a Secret Service agent who's a decoy. And the real FDR is ducked down in the back of a beat up old sedan, racing through the side streets across the city, following a Jeep um, because they're worried that there's a plot to murder him. And I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy for you, but that's chapter one of the book. And, and that's really what set us on our path to say, let's pull this, about, pull this apart. Why is FDR hiding in the back of a sedan at the height of World War II? What is he scared of? Who's trying to get him? Um, and why is the Secret Service so worried this is going to happen? So that, that's really where, where, where we jumped on. I have to admit that I had some trouble wrapping myself, my mind around this concept because one of the challenges for facing FDR and anybody traveling with him is that he 
is crippled from polio and he's in a wheelchair. He is, um, you describe very movingly his effort to actually walk unaided in front of Congress to um, declare war on Japan. And, you know, I, I'm having trouble imagining him hunched down in the back of a car. Did, is there, you know, logistically, it seems a little bit of a challenge. Are, is that really what happened? Uh, yeah, he, he was able to travel in vehicles, um, and it was often his, um, the head of his Secret Surrey team, Service team, a man named uh, Mike Riley, who we describe quite a bit about in the book, who would physically lift him from his wheelchair and put him in the backseat of the car. He was one of the few people who was strong enough to actually do it himself. Um, but he was able to travel uh, in vehicles. He liked traveling in vehicles. Uh, and for much of his presidency, uh, he, he would almost try to conceal the fact that you know, he wasn't able-bodied and, um, I mean, he was able-bodied, but the, conceal the fact that he had a disability and and, um, and he was proud of how he could handle himself and, and sort of not let it hamper him and came up with all kinds of ingenious ways to travel in, you know, different types of vehicles, boats, planes, you name it. Um, he had to figure it all out. Yeah, no, I know he traveled in trains. Now, I guess my thing was, I can see how they got him in the back of a vehicle, but then I'm wondering, did they just tip him over, you know, um, because he can't. No, but he, he had, I understand what you mean, Barbara, but he has, he can use his arms. He can, you know, and then yeah. that scene you described, let's just paint it because it is really one of the most moving ones. Yeah. When, when we declare war on Japan and, and Roosevelt gives his famous speech um, on, you know, and says, this is a date which will live in infamy. He usually will, you know, they, they have a way that they'll usually wheel him up and they'll do it off camera so you don't see it. But Roosevelt that day is determined to walk up to that podium himself. Right. And obviously his legs are, you know, are not functioning the way. So he's using his, his arms and his crutches to kind of make his way. He's dragging the dead weight of his legs behind him. If you go on YouTube and watch the day of infamy speech, um, what's interesting is he never makes any hand motions to accentuate his points because he's holding himself up with his hands and he's using his head and his head movements to actually accentuate all those different points. Um, but that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't prevent him from, of course, leaning down or picking him or pushing himself up. No, I know. I was just, you know, sort of a way into the conversation, but it is an interesting image. I have been to Yalta and I have actually done a tour of the different you know, because they housed them in different places. And there was a tremendous security. I can hardly believe that we sailed around the Black Sea in 2011. And at one point, remembering my Russian from Stanford, which I had largely forgotten, I got my husband and myself on a little wooden Russian tour boat after the, the ship, the cruise ship tour was over. And we sailed around in the sea through the Russian Navy and took pictures. And I mean, it was like 11 years ago, barely now, well, not even 12. And, you know, I, I still think about that, how quickly that all changed. Crimea was still Crimea, Odessa was still free, and Yalta was something that um, everybody talked about, about how they all came together, but nobody, as I said, hardly ever talks about Tehran. So I think it's wonderful that you have, um, you know, brought that first meeting and what it symbolized and the logistics of it and so forth together. I also think you're seeing, because it's the actual opening scene or right up in the front with the Nazis. Um, why don't you describe how it is that they enter Iran? Because it's a great thriller opener. I forget, Josh and I have a thing where we always take turns. I spoke last, Josh, so I'm gonna just let it go to you unless you want me to do this one. Okay. Sure, so the question is sort of how did they end up in Iran? In no, Tehran? no, it was the way you described the Germans as they are moving towards Tehran. And it, 
You've made the book read like a thriller. I mean, we know. I think you mean. Out. I think you mean Franz Mayer and the Par and uh, Operation Operation Franz, the the six paratroopers, is what you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so um, in somewhat coincidentally, in the year preceding this conference, this summit conference that was to take place in Tehran, and the reason it's in Tehran is a separate subject we can talk about. But um, it happened that there were a group. There was a German, a group of underground German agents in the city of Tehran who were quite active. Um, and that country was very important because it, it had a railway that, that was a key railway um, by which the United States was sending arms to the Soviet Union, which was an absolutely critical effort in the war. Um, and so there were these German agents in the city of, so the allies were controlling Iran, but there was a, a sleeper cell, a group of German agents in Tehran who were trying to kind of get a rebellion going, a pro-Nazi rebellion. And uh, we, we talk in the book, we cover a lot this, the main agent whose name was Franz Meyer and his efforts to kind of get this group of both Nazi agents and Nazi sympathizers in the region uh, to, to be a, you know, a, an important part of the war and to potentially overthrow the allied control of that railroad. Uh, so they're in Tehran already. And then when the Nazi intelligence services learn that there's gonna be the first ever uh, summit meeting between the quote unquote big three, uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin in the city of Tehran, they're like, wow, we already have this, this, this team of agents there. So it created a kind of an opportunity that was almost too good to be true for them, too good to pass up. So that's how it was that the Nazis are focused on this summit in Tehran and thinking, well, what can we do about this? How can we take advantage of this opportunity? Yeah, one of the things that we love is it's not just the Operation Franz group, but you see what the other Nazis are doing. One of my favorite scenes in the whole book, um, you know, we all know FDR, we all know Churchill, and of course we all know Stalin, but there's all these kind of bit players that you've never heard of, I had never heard of. There's a guy named Otto Skorzeny, who's a Nazi um, special operations guy, and Adolf Hitler is putting together, he wants to find basically the best of the best of his fighters. And he brings together at the Wolf Slayer, which is of course his, his headquarters, and he lines them all up in a room and they're all standing there. And what he says to this group of special operations fighters is he says, what do you think of Italy? And all of them quickly start blurting things like, oh, well, Italy's on our side in the war. They're part of the Axis power. So of course we, you know, we stand strong with them. And this one Nazi, Otto Skorzeny, blurts out above everybody else and says, uh, I am from Austria, my Fuhrer. And it's a gamble by Skorzeny because he knows, of course, that Hitler's from Austria. And what he's trying to say is anyone from Austria knows that in World War I, Austria took, uh, Italy took a key piece of Austria and never returned it. And therefore, anyone truly from Austria hates Italy a little bit there. And it's a gamble that pays off because in that moment, Adolf Hitler looks at Skorzeny and is like, I got my guy. And he then puts Skorzeny, he puts Otto on the secret mission. I don't want to ruin this part of the book, but on a secret mission that when you get to this part in the Nazi conspiracy, I promise you will not believe it. In fact, it's so crazy, this rescue mission that he's on with, with Nazis literally raining from the sky, which they tell me he's going to have an 80% casualty rate and everyone's going to die. It's so bananas that Josh and I decided, we talked to the editor and said, we need to put a photograph of this moment in the actual pages of the book because when you read it, you're going to be like, this can't be true. They must have made it up. Josh and Brad had to have made this up. And we didn't. And, and it's funny, my son, 
who's reading the book right now. I don't know if I told you, Josh, my son's reading the book and he got to the scene with Otto Skorzeny and he said, dad. And I'm like, he's like, Otto Skorzeny. I'm like, I know. He's like, is it real? I'm like, I, it is, it's real. He's like, but I'm like, turn the page. There's a photograph of it. And he turns the page. It's like, oh my gosh, it's real. So when you get to that scene in the book, you will see um, who he rescues. And it's just a, a truly mind-blowing moment. It feels like something out of a Mission Impossible movie. So, you know, a term that became very popular and still is, is narrative nonfiction. Um, is that what you, you know, when you're writing this, do you, do you feel like you're taking true things and giving it the power and the pulse of if you were writing a, a thriller fiction? Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, Josh and I, are our kind of merger is, is thriller writer and documentarian. Right. Um, and what we do is you get this wonderful, uh, full credit to Josh's incredible research is so incredible, meticulous. You know, there's 30 pages of footnotes in this book. And when we first met the first book, uh, I remember saying to Josh, he taught me how to do a documentary, how to do nonfiction. And I hopefully taught him something about writing a thriller. Um, and I remember in the first book we worked on, I was taking, you know, I was, he was selling a narrative that was straight in order. And I was like, no, 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 let's, let's cut it up and do it this way. And we'll put this, you know, here, we'll put the bomb really early so we can set the tension early. And it's all the tricks I use in the thriller. Uh, and then at this point, truthfully, Josh has figured it out because I'm not that complex, <laughs> truthfully, but, but it is exactly what you said, Barbara, it is trying to bring narrative. There's a reason why the book is in present tense. That's a conscious choice by us. Instead of saying, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was worried is to say Franklin Roosevelt is worried. And suddenly it, the action is not a boring uh, encyclopedia entry, but it's a narrative. You know, it's an interesting thing to take something where people know how it comes out and turn it into suspense or grip you with a sense of suspense, uh, even though you know that the three guys are not going to die, um, you still go, you know, Oh my God, maybe they could. So Josh, you know, um, what do you feel about the, this merging of your different talents? Well, I think Brad described it pretty well. Um, and, you know, I, I think what we do is a little bit unusual. Um, there is the term narrative nonfiction that you hear, you know, it's a, applying a narrative style to, to nonfiction stories. Uh, but I, it's almost like we take it to uh, an even farther level. Uh, you know, writing in the present tense, as, as Brad mentioned, was a decision we made. We didn't even put a whole lot of thought into it. We're like, well, let's just try writing in the present tense. Like no one does that. Let's see how it goes. And it did get, I think it gives it a kind of a flavor that's a little bit unusual. And, um, and I, you know, I, I think we just, we both really love telling stories. Um, uh, you know, we both have backgrounds in other medias. Uh, in addition to writing, you know, prose, Brad has written comic books, he's written thrillers. Uh, I've worked in television. So we, we just bring, a, a, I think we try to bring a fresh storytelling style um, and then we still do all of the research that you would find in more conventional books. Uh, and But we really try to just almost make it like you're watching a movie as you're reading the book. We, we follow the action as it happens. We're not talking about it as if here we are today and we're going to talk about this thing in the past. We try to drop the reader right in the moment and then the reader sort of follows along. And, uh, and it's amazing how, as you said, some things, you know, people know in a way what's going to happen, but uh, if the story is compelling, you just still want to go on that ride and you still feel that suspense. So, Well, I think it's the sense of immediacy that really carries people along, you know, it's like happening in real time. I did not expect 
then I would really be compelled by the third Jack Ryan, which is just, you know, been screening. And the, there's a character in it that actually is Vladimir Putin. I mean, you know, he's making his... I also want to know where they got the great footage of Moscow. I am probably never going to get to Moscow, even though I spent a lot of time in Russia. Um, and I'm, I'm still baffled by that. But, but what was intriguing was the, you know, the immediacy of the story, even though you know that what they're what they're postulating is going to happen isn't going to happen. You still are. I mean, in a lot of thrillers, it could happen, right? You don't know until you get to the end of the book. But in a case like that, you do know that Russia and the United States didn't actually go to war in the Baltic, and yet you're going. And so you did. You did the same thing in the book. Um, and I'm I'm mentioning all this possibly at greater length than I should because I think sometimes readers of fiction don't don't naturally want to pick up nonfiction. They don't think it will be as compelling um, as, you know, reading a novel. So I'm trying to like push them into saying, you know, if you like Brad's thrillers um, or anybody's thrillers, then you would really like this book. Another feature of the book that I think makes it really fascinating, and Brad's already touched upon it, but here's a photograph. There are lots of photographs, illustrations in the book. This one is of Heydrich, who is uh, one of the many evil Nazis. So the thing that's crazy is all the, whenever we show a picture of the evil Nazi, it always looks like an evil Nazi. <laughs> it always does. It's like, it's like central casting, right? Reinhard Heydrich looks like a horrible person. I remember they sent this, remember Joshua, it was like two or three pictures of this guy and it just looked like evil, evil or an evilist. And it, I was like, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. And that, and I think Barbara, to, to what you were saying, you know, when you have something that you know the outcome, it, it's like the, the movie Titanic. You know, one of the great narrative moments that when you, whatever you think of the movie all these years later, but one of the most brilliant things that they did, uh, and I'll, I'll never forget it because I watched it from that kind of technical perspective of writing thrillers. I'm like, I know what's going to happen. That Titanic's going to go down. And in the very beginning of the movie, one of the things they do is they show you that model of the Titanic, that it goes down and then it comes up again and right. then it cracks. And it, it's that great Hitchcock quote. It's not the bang that's scary. It's the anticipation of it. And the moment they do that, even though you know everything that's going to happen, you are breathlessly waiting for it to happen. And, and I think for us, we did the same, you know, we tried to do something similar um, by showing that it's not a, you know, today we tell the story that we won World War II, we punched the Nazis in the jaw and we saved the day for democracy, but it was never a foregone conclusion. And when you read the book, one of the things that really struck, you know, strikes us and we hope strikes you is how precarious that relationship between Stalin and Churchill and FDR really is. You can see that what FDR is, is realizing, and the only thing he has like solid, rock solid bedrock belief in is his own ability to charm everybody. He believes like, you know what, Churchill, I'll take Stalin, he likes me better. And then he goes over to Churchill and he's like, you know, I'll take Churchill because I know Churchill likes me better. And, and I think presidents, you know, the best presidents, whether you look at George Washington, you look at Abraham Lincoln, uh, it's not that they gave the best speeches. It's not that they, you know, were, were the most inspiring in that moment. It's not that they made the best promises when they were elected. It's actually the opposite of that. It's that when something happens that they never anticipated happening, this great disaster is upon them. It's whether they can pivot and adjust to that disaster. And that's what makes a great leader. And you see in this moment, you know, we never wanted to be in World War II. We didn't want to fight the Nazis. We wanted nothing to do with them. World War I had taken so many of our young soldiers the stock market crash was a disaster. FDR was elected to keep the country from ruin. 
And obviously Pearl Harbor happens and, and suddenly we're in it. And I think what you see is just how close we came to it not working out and what a disaster the Nazis were having, in, especially in the Soviet Union. I mean, I, I don't think I ever appreciated, you know, to put it in perspective, uh, the America, we buried about 421,000 people were lost in the United States in World War II. The British were about 450,000. The Soviet Union buried 24 million people. The loss and the devastation that was taking place is staggering. And when you see that, even in, when you're reading the Nazi conspiracy, it takes your breath away in a horrible way, but it takes your breath away. You know, your point is so well made at the moment because look at Zelensky. I mean, you know, there's another person who has risen to the moment. I've often thought and, and talked to my British friends about it. I didn't think Britain could have held up if it hadn't been for Churchill. His sheer pugnaciousness, his determination, whatever. And I think that Roosevelt was, you know, the only man for the job for where we were. I don't, I don't know that everybody watching this realizes we did not declare war on Nazi Germany. We declared war on Japan and Hitler in one of his second, well, I think his second great miscalculation, uh, decided to declare a war in the United States himself. And it's not clear to me that we would have declared war on Nazi Germany, or at least quite so quickly. What's your thought, Josh? And because you've done a lot of research, do you think that might be true? That's a, such a fascinating question. Um, and uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, after Pearl Harbor, uh, there was, we, there was no declaration of war against Nazi Germany. It was just about Japan. Um, and Hitler almost, it's like he almost wanted to preemptively declare war against the United States uh, because he wanted to be the one making the decision. Uh, he wanted to be in the world spotlight. Uh, and a lot of his advisors said, you're crazy. You don't want to go to, the, go to war against the United States. You're already going to war against the Soviet Union and at war you know, with, in Western Europe and holding all these territories. Uh, but he felt that, you know, uh, that, that his role in history was to be the person taking the action. And so he wasn't going to wait around passively to see what happened with the United States. Uh, so he, he made this very bold declaration of war. And the interesting question is whether had Roosevelt wanted to declare war on Germany, whether he even could have, because he would require the support of Congress. And most uh, the American public and con the Congress representing them were still trying to stay out of, of the war in Europe um, at that time. So, I mean, it's interesting to imagine how history would have been different, but as it happened, uh, Hitler declared war on the United States. And so we were at war. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a decision that Roosevelt ever had to make when it came to Germany. So even if Hitler thought he had, you know, some whatever to history, some bow to history here or figure in history, he clearly hadn't read it or he would have paid attention to Napoleon who made the same idiotic decision to attack the Soviet Union. Um, you know, where the territory alone, the size of the land and the climate and the supply chains were always gonna be impossible to handle. And my other question, which I often ask, cause I am an historian by training. I mean, I have master's degrees in it and so forth is what was he gonna do with it if he conquered it? What was he going to do with Russia? Was he going to govern it from Paris? You know, Berlin is at least closer. I mean, you could sort of see that that might work out. But, you know, I mean, and this will be an awful statement, but I could say the same thing about what were we going to do with Vietnam if we if we won? Or what were we going to do with Afghanistan? I mean, you know, 
I understand what Putin thinks he can do with the Ukraine because there's a a con what's the word? It's contiguous territory. Sorry. But you know, you do have to wonder what, what these guys are thinking. And why why can't they just be content with Europe? I often think that. About well, and, and as you said, Barbara, that's the miscalculation and, and his second miscalculation, let's just talk about it because it, it over what you just said is he thinks that the Soviet Union is going to fall and they're going to give up pretty quickly, which of course they don't. And and one of, the, one of the scenes I just, again, took my breath away in the book is we talk about the Battle of Leningrad. And, you know, we'd all, I'd have heard the story, of course. And, and you know, when you read the book and you'll see this is, you know, the Germans uh, come in, the Nazis come in, they circle the city and, and you know, they don't want to deal with POWs. They don't want to deal with all of that. So what they do is they circle the city, say no one's getting in and no one's getting out of Leningrad. And what they're basically gonna do is starve everyone to death. And it happens quickly. I mean, suddenly they're looking around, there's no food. So they're eating their dogs and then they're eating rats. And then people are looking at each other and doing the unthinkable. It's the single largest loss of human life in a major city in history. And within a year, 900,000 people are dead. It's almost a million people in just one year and just in Leningrad. And, and you know, one of the things that Hitler miscalculates is they're going to give up and they don't. And, and in that miscalculation is, of course, a miscalculation about the United States. And one of my favorite quotes in there is Winston Churchill remembers a quote about the United States as saying he's heard that says that the United States is like a gigantic boiler. And once you light a fire under it, there's no limit to the amount of power it will produce. And Churchill's right about that too. So those two miscalculations, of course, wind up just devastating Hitler and, and watching this all play out in real time in the book as the, as the plot, which we can talk about is, uh, is taking place to me is just puts a, makes World War II look in a, a brand new way that you won't look at it the same way again. You know, the first time I've been to St. Petersburg, Leningrad, now back to being St. Petersburg, a couple of times, and we spent a week there as guests of the Hermitage, my husband and I, a few years ago. And I chose to go in December because I thought if I'm going to go back to St. Petersburg, you know, I'm going to really do it right in December. And what on the second time when we had more time, we were told they took us. There's a, a wonderful hotel. I think it's called the Grand Hotel, but nearby is an even posher hotel. And Hitler and his crew had basically booked the hotel because they thought they were just going to roll right to St. Petersburg and they were going to have their victory party right there in the hotel. You know, I mean, to them, it was they didn't even think about resistance. You know, they thought it was just going to be, you know, over and done and we'll go celebrate with lots of vodka and the whole bit. I mean, you know, I, I found it. There's so many things about this war that you keep learning. I mean, we're, you know, look how far I was born in 1940. So I have very fragmented memories of the war. I just wasn't old enough. But I remember the post-war period. And I all kinds of things had come out that we didn't know anything about. None of us had any clue about, you know, Catholic priests getting Nazis out of the way or the gold in Switzerland or all of these stories. Right now, the hottest thing in women's fiction are all the women's stories about things that women did in World War II. You know, they saved books, they saved children, you know, they, you know, they sold spy, they, they stitched codes into dressmaking patterns to pass them on, all this amazing stuff. Why do you think everybody is so interested in World War II right now? I mean, it is an enormous um, section of, of literature. Josh, why, why do you think it's so gripping still? 
Well, of course, there are a lot of answers to that question. And you're right, the literature about World War II is already vast, uh, nonfiction, fiction, uh, academic books, uh, you know, uh, books, books for all types of readers. Um, and yet there is still, as you said, so much to learn about it. And uh, I mean, it's fascinating for many reasons, but I think part of it is just the stakes are so high. It's, it's a, a moment when the, the, the globe was really on the brink of being taken over by uh, a, a murderous autocracy that was already committing just horrific atrocities that are almost unimaginable. And of course, we've all sort of heard about them, but when you really study it, it's it just, as Brad said, it takes your breath away, um, just learning anew uh, everything that happened. And it was terrifying. And there were was a long period when it really felt like, uh, you know, that Nazi Germany and, and Japan really could succeed and that all of Europe was gonna be taken over and who knows what would have happened after that. And Churchill gave some amazing speeches saying, you know, it's not just about this, you know, when, when uh, Nazi Germany was invading the Soviet Union, he said, it's not just about the Soviet Union. If the Soviet Union falls, uh, we're really in trouble because, you know, what will be next? Uh, India could be next. I mean, it, it, it was a global phenomenon and so many lives were at risk. Uh, there was so much destruction that could happen um, and and it was a really preventing an, an apocalypse, essentially. And the question was, can we rise up and, and fight back against this, this really evil ideology? Um, and it wasn't always clear who was going to win. So just the stakes alone uh, just make it endlessly fascinating to study. And all the different parts of the war, the different locations, the different countries involved, it's almost infinite. No one will ever fully understand it. No one person could ever fully understand it. Uh, so I think those are just some of the reasons why uh, why it's so fascinating even today. And maybe Brad has has more to say about it. No, I think that's it. I also I do think for Americans though, um, we love stories where we're the good guys, and it's the ultimate good guy story, right? There's clear bad guys. There's clear good guys. And when can you ever say that the U.S. government comes in, does the right thing, saves the day, and it all works out. There's just nothing we agree on like World War II. So I think that also just adds to it. It's one of those ones we all agree on. Were you at Thriller Fest, Brad, when Ken Follett was the guest of honor? Was it Was it what? Were you at Thriller Fest the year? Um, I, I was Follett. a I uh, forget, I forget, what year was, that wasn't the first year. No, no, it wasn't because the first year was here in Arizona because it was because I, 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 you know, kind of created it back at a different conference. Now, the reason I mentioned it was that Ken Follett, um, when in his, you know, speech as guest of honor, somebody asked him, why is there this endless fascination with World War II? Why are there so many books about it? And he said, it's because it's the only war in history where there was a clear right side and a clear wrong side. And therefore, you know, it lends itself amazingly well to fiction, to thriller. But what I find really interesting, you know, is the big picture that you're talking about. But it's all these little personal stories that keep coming out. Even yours, in a way, is a lesser known story about this plot in Turin than, as I said earlier, Yalta. But, you know, there's just, there's just so many players, so many individual lives. But I wanted to ask you, um, particularly you, Brad, as an author, to make a big story really resonate, do you need to make it? Do you need to focus it on a person? You know, do you, because the big picture is so big. 
does it does it have more impact if the journey in the book is taken by one or two people? No, it has to. Um, you can't you can't just say good and evil are fighting. Um, right. You'll see the stories. You know, whether it's Reinhard Heydrich, we delve into his life. This guy who's kind of one of the architects of the Third Reich, or or Franz Mayer, this you know guy in his twenties and his late twenties who gives the, the Germans the greatest thing that anyone should ever have in a fight, which is an opportunity, because he's the guy on the ground in Iran. Um, I think, you know, at all those details, you have to, Mike Riley, who's promoted the day after Pearl Harbor hits and is carrying Roosevelt in his arms, as Josh mentioned, um, these stories are incredible and they have to be human stories. You know, the best stories of all are never about plots or facts or encyclopedia entries. The best story that you love, the best book you love is about you. It's you feeling something about your own life. And you have to be able to connect with something and someone in that book. Um, and, and sometimes it may be, of course, there are great details. You know, I remember uh, one of the things I loved is, you know, everyone kept asking, well, how does this plot to kill Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin, how do, how do they even know that they're meeting in, in, in Tehran, Iran? And, and the answer is nobody knows. There are just pieces that we don't have. There's... There's a thing that the Nazis had called brown sheets. They were little dark brown pieces of paper that they would put their top secret intelligence on. And these brown sheets would be locked in these, in these zippers that would be locked away. After a month, you had to destroy your brown sheet so no one knew what was on it. And uh, people uh, like Joseph Goebbels uh, decided to keep really extensive diaries. And he wrote what was in the brown sheets in his diaries. It's the only reason we know some of the details we found in the book and it's one of the details we found was that the Nazis had actually cracked the international cables and were listening in and knew what Churchill and FDR were saying to each other. That's an incredible moment to me, right? When you see that the secret way the Nazis are communicating with each other and then what they know about us. And then you see Mike Riley, the head of the Secret Service, the White House Secret Service reacting to this in real time and the NKVD, the precursor to the, to the KGB and the Soviet Union saying, well, we have information about this plot to kill them all. It, it, if you don't have these people to lock onto, all the great details you put in there just fall flat. You have to have people. And, and even Franz Mayer is you know, sleeping with a woman in the town who's sleeping with another person who I won't reveal who it is because it's just so fascinating when you see it. And that love interest and that love story becomes this incredible story too. So you know, absolutely, if you can't find those humans and, and you see it in, in Churchill and Stalin, we, we take that bromance and absolutely point out that, you know, it's not perfect. We, we tell today, like, they're both the right people for the job, and they did great, but there's a point where FDR risks everything and totally lies to Churchill and says to Stalin, let's meet without him. And you're like, what? How could you do that to your buddy? Um, and those human moments are the moments that we, at least for me, that I connect with. I think part of it's a matter of scale, too. I mean, you have to, you have, to have the story at a where the reader can grasp it, you know, rather than just get lost. Right, it's too big. It's too big otherwise. You're right. Exactly. Um, there's a one. This is a classic photo, but I'm going to hold it up anyway. But this is a picture um, that I've often seen of the three of them. But was this actually in Turan? It wasn't true. See, I've always thought that was the Yalta photo. This is Turan. Yeah, no, this is the first time I meet. 
There's a famous photo from Yalta too. And it's the one where Roosevelt has the kind of heavy cloak over his shoulders and he looks older and it was cold. But that photo from Turan in which he looks very vigorous. Well, look at him. He's got his legs crossed. He, he would not guess in fact that he had his, you know, his polio disability looking at that photo. So yeah. Josh, I haven't, um, um, I haven't given you an opportunity, the two of you, to just talk about how the book is structured or how the story goes. So do ignore me now and do that for a bit. Uh, you mean to sort of tell the main plot? Whatever you'd story? like to say about, you know, the book. You can uh, say well, anything I'll, you want, Josh. <laughs> I'll be very brief. And as, you know, kind of Brad did before, we don't want to give everything away because there are so many wonderful details in the book. Uh, that you know are more suspenseful and interesting if you don't know in advance. But uh, a sort of short capsule version is that uh, right in the middle of the war in 1943, really the peak of the war, um, uh, the the big three Allied leaders, as they were called, uh, FDR, Churchill, and Stalin, uh, after months and months and months and months of painstaking negotiations and logistical planning, uh, are are to meet for the first time ever face to face. Uh, which was a real goal of Roosevelt's to get the three of them together uh, to plan some very important uh, aspects of war strategy. Uh, and the location they ended up choosing at Stalin's insistence was Tehran, Iran. And, um, and so a lot of our book is focused on what's going on in Tehran and as the three big leaders uh, plan to meet there. And um, it, it turns out that the Nazi intelligence services learn about this meeting to take place. Uh, and as it happens, they already had a system in place to send paratroopers to the city of Tehran. And so once they learn about this meeting, um, uh, the wheels start turning and there's a, a plot underway. And, 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 when, um, and when the Americans land in Tehran, they learn from the Russians uh, that, uh, that their lives could be in danger and the lives of the big three leaders could be in danger. So that's the very just brief version of the story. And in the book, we just go through all the details about uh, how it was that this meeting took place and how it was that they were in danger and then what they do about it. And then in the course of telling that story, it gives us a chance to delve into all sorts of other details of the war and, and really try to also sort of tell the big, bigger picture of 1943 and what's going on in the world and in the war at that time that makes this meeting so incredibly important. Yeah, Josh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, to talk about, I know the answer, but um, I think people would like to hear it is, you know, when we did the first conspiracy about the secret plot to kill George Washington, we had the New York Historical Society records, you can get stuff from the National Archives, same with the Lincoln conspiracy about the first secret plot to kill Abraham Lincoln at the start of his presidency. Um, you know, we had the archives again, but this is the first international book we did. And I remember when you called me and said, um, we're going to need people who speak German and who speak Russian. Uh, and I'd love for you to, you know, I think people would like to hear, because it is pretty interesting, like what that's like when you when you're taking on a, a whole nother, uh, a whole nother universe like that. Well, it's, it's definitely challenging. Um, and one of the hardest things about telling this particular story is that there is just a flood of uh, misinformation out there about it. I mean, if anyone just sort of Googles this story, um, and, you know, oh, there was a, a plot to kill FDR and Stalin and, and, and Churchill and Tehran. Let's see what I can learn about it. You'll just encounter all kinds of information. Uh, it's incredibly confusing. Uh, a lot of it is false. Uh, a lot of it is speculation. And trying to sift through what's real and what's not and what's a rumor and what's speculation is very confusing. And, um, and there aren't 
crystal clear records as to what happened. So you have to kind of put a lot of little clues together and pieces together. And part of that for us was delving into, uh, you know, German archives and Soviet archives, which are not readily available. Um, I mean, the, most of the German archives are accessible, but a lot of the information, uh, uh, you know, about the Nazi party and especially the Nazi intelligence service services was destroyed after the war. So there's just these little fragments that you can try to find. And then, uh, you know, the Soviets uh, and now the Russians are the gatekeepers of their end of the story. And there's almost no organization in the world more secretive than, uh, you know, the, the Russian archives. So uh, it, it's very confusing. It took a lot of work. It took months to even get a, a clear idea of what we even thought about it, um, let alone all the details of what, of what happened. So it was a journey. Uh, it was a difficult journey. Uh, as we say very clearly in the book, there's still elements of it that are still a mystery. We don't claim to have all the answers as to what exactly happened or didn't happen. We And in the book, we sometimes speculate and say, we think this or we think that, because right now no one knows the 100% truth. Um, but it was it was a fascinating journey to go on. And, um, and I, 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 I'm quite proud of where we landed in terms of feeling pretty confident in, in the version of the story that we tell. I think the other thing that's really interesting, and we see this in the book, but you know, the people who really save the day, who come and tell Mike Crowley, the, the head of the Secret Service, hey, listen, your boss is in danger, uh, is the NKVD, is the Soviet Union's intelligence service. They're the ones who actually the, you know, are, are the quote unquote good guys who, who come in and, and, and are there to protect everyone. Um, I won't ruin the ending because there's so many great twists of why they might be doing that. But the thing that struck me is everyone asked, well, why don't I know the story? How do you not know the story? When FDR comes home from the conference in Tehran, he holds a press conference and he says, oh, and by the way, the Nazis tried to kill us. And the phone, of course, starts ringing. Everyone's like, what, what the hell's going on? Um, and, you know, there, it's fascinating to watch what comes out after that because soon as the 60s arrive, and World War II nostalgia kind of peaks. Guess what else peaks? The Cold War. And people don't want to tell stories in the Cold War where the Russians are the good guys who saved the day. And it's at that point that a whole new version of this plot kind of takes over. And it's one where the Russians may not be the good guys in this story, that the Soviets are not at all the good guys in this story. And you'll see as we parse it out in the book, I won't ruin that part, but history is, is most definitely not math. There's not just one answer. There's lots of perspectives. And depending on what perspective you pick gets what story is told. And, and that is, again, one of the most fascinating parts of it. And, and I think we, we should also say, um, you know, when Josh and I sit down and we start every book, we always start by saying, okay, here's the plot. Here's the titillating thing we can say. There's a plot to kill the big three. There's a plot to kill in World War II or Lincoln or Washington. But we always say, well, what's the book actually about? And it was not lost on us that this book, and we didn't know where we were going to be today two years later, um, but it was really this rise in anti-Semitism. And as great historians have said, you know, the Holocaust does not start with death camps. It starts with slogans and uh, book bannings and rallies and propaganda. It starts with a group of, you know, native-born white Germans who want to tell a story about this marginalized group and say, those people are ruining your life. Those people are the one responsible. Um, and when you hear those words, those people, it's a code, right? And sometimes it's the Jewish people and sometimes it's the black community and sometimes it's the gay community, it's the immigrant community, pick 
whatever marginalized group you want. But when you hear those words, those people, that's when you're supposed to use your voice and say no. And you're supposed to stand up and stop it. Because we didn't just write this book to entertain you or inform you. We also wrote this book to warn you. Um, these stories are, you know, when you see Kanye West or you see Charlottesville, uh, we go, oh, we wring our hands and we say, oh, it's so bad that it's happening here in America. But you'll see in the book, there's a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden with 20,000 people in the heart of New York City saying, if the first speaker said, if George Washington was alive today, he'd be friends with Adolf Hitler. Big pictures of George Washington with swastikas next to it. Um, you know, World War II is not that long ago, as Barbara said. And we have to remember that, you know, these are the, there's a time and a reason that these stories repeat. And I think for us, that's what this book is really about, is looking at authoritarianism and why it's on the rise again and why anti-Semitism is on the rise again and, and the destructive patterns of what happens when you have these, these group of people who, uh, who just want to tell kind of vengeful, hateful stories about another group of people. There was a brilliant piece by Paul Krugman in the New York Times, I think it was Saturday, in which he talks about not the politics of grievance, but the politics of resentment as an explanation for, I'm going to be political here for a moment, as an explanation for why the Republicans have elected these yo-yos and allowed them to take over. I mean, we have two of them here in Arizona, two of whom, you know, didn't even vote for the speaker. So I considered an absolute miracle that we got through this election without, you know, without it all falling apart. But, but his thesis is that um, grievance is one thing. Did you read it? Because you probably will say this better than I can, Brad. I haven't, I did not read it, but I agree. I mean, well, I, I very much tell know, you, I think, was, I think grievance was, is it's incredible. The vengeance that's in our politics today is baked into it. Well, but he's making a real distinction between grievance, which actually has, you know, root causes. And grievances are things you can talk about and possibly ameliorate. Resentment just means, you know, there is no substance involved. You are just resentful. And if life is not being fair to you and you feel that people are looking down at you, if you feel there's an elite ignoring you, then you are resentful. And one of your reactions is to say, well, let's just put people in power that aren't any better than we are. And then we can feel okay about ourselves, which I thought, I mean, I've tried to make some sense out of what's been happening. And I thought, wow, that's just like a flashlight going off here to explain it. And, you know, if you, if you look back, whenever there's been something like this, you know, we think about the French Revolution. Sure, it was equality and fraternity and all that good stuff. But what they got was Napoleon. And then they got the monarchy right back. So where did that go? The Russian Revolution. Sure, they got rid of the czars. But then they got, you know, they got Stalin. And life was far worse. And, you know, every time you've got this, like, whole thing of resentments and it leads to some kind of cataclysm, it never ends up where you think it was going to go. It, it always goes bad in the you know, no, but, that's why, but, but as you said that's why we tell these stories yeah right? no i was if you tell the stories you can't possibly learn when you see the repetition of it um that is when i hope people use their voices and say no no it's enough i mean i know that that's almost the cliche we say of the hollow of the holocaust we will not for you know we'll never forget um but we can't you can't forget and and that's why the story You'll see there's moments, and, and we just dumb lucked into this, you know, there's moments you'll see that we write about in the Ukraine. And 
we obviously had no idea the wall war was going to break out. And then you're reading the Nazi conspiracy and you see this scene that takes place in Ukraine and you watch the Soviets are doing exactly what was done and they were fighting against the Nazis for doing all those years ago. And you just watch it repeat right there in front of your eyes. It's an incredible moment when you see these scenes in the Ukraine um, as if it was yesterday compared to-, to you know, But resentment is not susceptible to any kind of rationality <laughs> or analysis. You know, I think that's why we get these pulses of it. So one last question I wanted to ask you before we move on to any questions from the audience. Churchill, you know, was a really astute guy. And while he is there in Turin meeting with Stalin, it's clear to me that Churchill saw the danger that Soviet Russia was going to pose for the West way early. I mean, when did he make his Iron Curtain speech? It was, was it 47? It was, it was very close, you know, to the end of World War II. Did you find any hints in your research? Maybe Josh, that's a good question for you, that, that Churchill was very wary of Stalin and already suspected that the Soviet Union was going to be the real enemy when the Nazis were defeated? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and absolutely, yes. Uh, Churchill was very wary of Stalin. Uh, he, he really distrusted uh, the Soviet Union well before the war. Um, and part of the struggle and the alliance was that Churchill and Stalin simply did not trust each other. They didn't trust each other as people, but in a bigger sense, they didn't trust each other's countries. Um, and, and so there's a, a lot to overcome there. And, uh, I, you know, uh, FDR was a real optimist about the Soviet Union. And, you know, after the fact, some people said that he was, you know, sort of naive about it, but it was his optimism that drove their alliance. He really believed that these countries could work together. Uh, the Soviet Union, as different as they were from the United States and from Great Britain, who had so many similarities with one another, um, uh, he believed that they could work together. And, uh, and he had faith. And he actually thought that he could personally sway Stalin. Now, that's not the case. No one can sway Stalin. Uh, he was called the Man of Steel for a reason. Uh, he was just one of the most sort of stubborn, intractable people in the history of the world. Um, but, but FDR believed that he could work with Stalin. He could convince Stalin uh, not just to fight together to win this war, but to, to, to work together in the post-war period. And, you know, who knows, maybe had FDR lived, he, he would have had a, a working relationship with Stalin that could have achieved better results. We'll never know. Um, but more likely, uh, some of his optimism about Stalin was a little bit misplaced. And uh, in fact, Churchill probably had the better read on the Soviets uh, because he simply didn't trust them. And, um, and sure enough, after the war, the elements of the Cold War start to solidify. And, um, and Stalin certainly takes advantage of the post-war situation in Eastern Europe. They're the, they're the victorious power, and he seizes all the power he can as a result in all those territories, um, and, and things pretty quickly fall apart, uh, tragically, in that post-war period, because that area had already suffered so much during, during the Nazi invasion uh, and all the violence and bloodshed and atrocities. And then in the post-war period, the Soviets you know, end up making some moves on their own that just kept, kept that region just mired in, in tragedy for so long. Um, but to answer, that was a long answer to your question, which was uh, Churchill certainly did not trust Stalin and he didn't trust the Soviet Union. And it took all of uh, FDR's willpower to get them to work together uh, to win the war. Churchill was a man who really understood real politique, to use the German phrase. And I'm pretty sure he thought that since Stalin and Hitler were at first allies, and Stalin became the 
you know, on the other side after Hitler turned around on him that, you know, it wasn't conviction or anything that brought Stalin to the table. It was, you know, um, that, that Hitler pivoted on Stalin. It wasn't that Stalin pivoted on Hitler. Yeah, yeah. Well, Stalin definitely was always thinking very shrewdly and practically uh, and pragmatically, and he was mostly interested in the power of his own regime. So um, he made alliances when it helped him, and then he would break the alliances when it didn't help him anymore. Yeah, there were a lot of breaks that allowed the Allied to win the war. I think you're, you know, you've made that point, and it's so true that, you know, there was, I mean, it wasn't quite as close as Waterloo. I often point out to people who get engaged in Regency fiction and all and think, you know, it was a 25-year war that Britain fought with France and nobody knew how it was going to come out until June of 1853. I mean, 1815. And, you know, it, I think 43 is a pivotal year, don't you? Because the sheer difference in men and materiel is really, you could begin to see that the war machine was going to grind down and we were going to overcome them. So it's a great year. But Definitely there were so year. many Absolutely. things that had to happen to let the allies actually win. Wow. Absolutely. So PK, do we have any comments from the audience? Or yeah, questions? we have some really great comments. So great. first of all, uh, uh, a lot of uh, enthusiastic readers, guys, they're really excited to read your new book. And actually, we've sold quite a few during this program. So for those of you who have supported this program and purchased books, Thank you so much. Now is your chance to get a signed copy of the Nazi conspiracy. So, I forgot to mention that <laughs> Dad bookseller so, me. I forgot to say that Brad so, has actually signed and signed and shipped them, and they are in the store. A hundred copies, actually ninety six. Um, actually, much less than that now. We've had a lot of uh, really excited readers. What they're saying is, you better order now, or you're not getting it. That's what they're telling you. <laughs> That's right. Uh, cool. it's, it's a good. It's a good problem to have. Um, so um, one of the questions that I had uh, was from Suzanne Rushton, or Susan Rushton, and she was curious for both of you. And she said, do you think that the Tehran conference played a part in the Cold War? Played a part in it? Um, well, you certainly, the, the way we view it is viewed through the Cold War as time goes on. Um, do I think it, I'm not sure if her question is if it led to it, but I think it certainly becomes the mic, you know, it, the Cold War becomes the microscope with which we judge the Tehran conference for a little bit, and, and we can't help but not do that. Uh, the only other thing I'd say is, you know, I think some uh, experts in the sort of geopolitics of the era could probably answer this better than better than Brad and I. But whether there were some concessions made in during the Tehran conference that ultimately later down the road allowed. You know, Stalin to do certain things in certain territories that led to the Cold War. Um, th there might be a case to be made there, although most people would probably point to the Yalta Conference, which is when the more the post-war planning took place uh, as, as, as the conference that kind of laid the groundwork for the Cold War. But there might have been some seeds planted in, in the Tehran Conference, but really their main focus in Tehran was on defeating Nazi Germany because the war was still very much uh, at its peak. So that was really the, the the absolute number one focus. And we should say, just to be clear, what comes out of this conference in Tehran is Normandy, is the cross-channel attack. That's where it all happens. So that is, you know, I, I feel like we've, we've talked about, we've never actually said the words out loud. So we just want to be Good clear point. about that. Yeah, it was absolutely critical. 
I've got to give a little shout out here to uh, Russ Thibault, who mentioned on Facebook, Barbara, that another book, if uh, they're interested um, in reading a fictionalized account of what occurred, William Martin's December 41, which was chosen as your historical book club. Yeah, uh, but that was actually a plot to assassinate Roosevelt in the United States. It didn't have anything to do with Tehran. I mean, it's another. Uh, so book. we don't want to recommend any other books. Let's be honest. <laughs> I do, Brad. Sorry. <laughs> um, another great question uh, comes from YouTube, and George Conrad would like to know: Were there any elements of the story that surprised you, gentlemen, uh, when you were doing the research for the book? I'll let Brad answer this one. No, you go. You go. I answer first last time, please. Well, I, I think um, uh, Brad has already mentioned a few of them. Uh, there's this absolutely spectacular uh, sequence. Uh, involving um, the the Nazi agents rescuing uh, one of their key allies uh, from a, a, a very remote location. That's just an absolutely spectacular story um, that we had never heard about, and uh, I think most people haven't. Uh, at the time, it was a pretty big deal, actually, in, in the sort of in the world press. But we had never heard about it. It's been this sort of forgotten, amazing story of World War II. But then, in the bigger sense, I think Brad's point about the sheer scale of destruction suffered by the Soviet Union relative to the United States and the United Kingdom is really quite staggering. Um, and uh, I think we've all heard a kind of an American-centric version of World War II growing up, uh, you know, seeing movies, reading history books, et cetera, what we learn in high school. Uh, there's obviously a focus on, you know, the American side of the war and, um, and we don't realize the true scope of devastation suffered by the Soviet Union and the sheer amount of fighting that the Soviet Union did uh, against Nazi Germany that was really the determinative factor in the war. That's really where the war was fought on Soviet soil. Um, and uh, you know, it, it took really researching this book for me at least to fully appreciate it uh, and also to appreciate the sheer uh, level of, civ of civilian death and destruction, uh, not just in the Soviet Union, but in other countries too. We focus so much on the soldiers, uh, but it, the civilian populations, there are so many civilian populations that were just absolutely devastated in the war. And it was humbling and horrifying, uh, you know, to learn the extent of that. And it just made me at least look at the, at the whole war a little bit differently. Yeah, the only other one, um, I mentioned most of them, but I'll add one more is, is a great moment where FDR is making his way abroad and he's on, uh, he's, I don't want to ruin the scene at all, but let's just say uh, there's suddenly a torpedo that's heading at his ship. And it's, again, one of those moments where you're like, how do I not know this story? So those, those moments, you know, there's so many moments in the Nazi conspiracy where you just go, how did I not know this about World War II? And, they, and they're, each of them is a front page story in its time but the war is so vast and the loss is so great and the Holocaust is happening that these incredibly massive stories, uh, they, you know, again, it's just too big. They get lost over time and, I, and, and seeing some of them is, is pretty amazing. So I have two things to say, one of which we haven't even mentioned the Battle of Stalingrad, which in point of fact was bloodier and, you know, Leningrad was a siege. Stalingrad was a battle and um, the loss of life there and so forth was absolutely tremendous. But it occurs to me, do you think that there may be any records existing in Iran itself that we have not had access to? Because, I mean, Iran's been a difficult country to penetrate for quite a long time. But do you think, Josh, in your research, there might be things that could be uncovered um, in the event that we're ever able to like access their 
um, archives? It's entirely possible. Uh, and it would be, you know, a fascinating thing for someone to really take that on. Um, you know, most of what, what we studied were the, the archives of the allied powers, right. uh, you know, the Russians. And then of course we looked through the German records uh, as well as the US and British records. Um, but could there be some secrets about this plot or some, some clues or hints or some new information somewhere uh, in, in, in Iran or in, in Tehran or in some secret, you know, cache of documents or buried under the sand somewhere? Of course, uh, and it would be, it would be interesting for this search to continue uh, and, and to try to find more clues as to what, what really happened and didn't happen in this story we tell. That's Josh's pitch for the next History Channel show, by the way. <laughs> How about you, PK? Anything else? Oh gosh, we're getting we're getting lots of questions from the audience tonight. Um, there's several questions in regards to uh, future fiction from you, Brad, and also future um, nonfiction collaborations from both of you. Yeah, let's talk. And I'm going to talk also about Josh's. He's going to have the next book out. Um, so just to answer those questions, and and one thing that we should have said at the start, but I just need to say thank you to every person still watching. Thank you to everyone. Obviously, we love Poison Pen, and you guys know, but. Uh, our readers are so amazing, so wonderful. I loved how many people were so excited we were doing this virtual event with you, Barbara. And um, I just can't thank you all enough. I mean, I'm literally in a hotel room that I just got into. Uh, I'm literally in Times Square. There's like all these, um, uh, truly Times Square is right here. Josh is, you know, we're so close to each other, but yet so far. And, um, and to be able to come together is really meaningful. Um, I will tell you, just in terms of what's coming out next, I actually brought it here because I feel like if you come to our events, you need to be rewarded, right? Because everyone can come. So this is the next book that comes out as I am John Lewis. Um, and I'm going to show you, no one has seen this yet because we haven't been allowed to show it. But here's the opening pages of John Lewis um, that Chris Eliopoulos, our incredible artist, has just crushed it on. And, and I'll show you the finale because it just takes my breath away every time I see it. He was so uh, upset at me because he said, he said, do I have to draw all these people marching? And I'm like, you got to draw them all. So when you have an artist, you just get to see him drawing individually on the Pettus Bridge. Wow. Um, That's beautiful. So that comes out. John Lewis comes out next week. We actually did two books in two weeks, which is pretty crazy. We do I Am Temple Grand and after that. Um, and then I'm working on the sequel to The Lightning Rod right now. The Zig and Nola are coming back again. So I've been working on that. Now here's, and then I want Josh to talk about his book because he has a book coming out. I don't know if you want to talk about it yet, yet Josh or not, but you should. Um, but I'll tell you that you stayed this long. You're, we're in like hour one right now. I'm going to tell you the next two books that we're doing in the Ordinary People Change World Series. You can't tell anyone. Don't put it on the internet. We're going to take a blood oath right now, but just don't say anything. I'm very serious. The, the publisher will kill me, but I feel like if you come to our events, you got you to know this stuff. So we're doing... Um, we do I Am Wonder Woman, which you know is for those who watch is coming out at the end of the year. But after that, we do I Am Mr. Rogers, and then we're doing I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And those are the next two that are coming out. And they are, wait till you see Chris's art on them, they are spectacular. And Josh, take it away, please. And then, oh, and Josh and I are working on the next one. We're supposed to tell our editor, oh, we're like halfway through it, but we're totally not because we're behind. Um, <laughs> but Josh, I'll, I'll let you take it away. 
Um, well, I, I am working on my own book. It's an, a nonfiction history book, uh, a little bit different from the ones that Brad and I do together. And I won't say too much about it other than that I'm going back to the Civil War era, which is where you know Brad and I wrote our second book called The Lincoln Conspiracy. So I'm going back to the Civil War and it's about also, I think, an event in uh, an American history that isn't so well known, uh, but that was uh, rather uh, shocking and, and uh, unbelievable uh, events that occurred in New York City in 1863 um, that really open up the politics um, and the drama of, of that year. So uh, that's all I'll say about it for now, but um, um, perhaps I'll be back at the, at the poison pen someday to talk about it. I'd be honored to. Well, we'd be delighted to see. And if I don't see <coughs> any person for the sequel to The Lightning, there's gonna be murder. I know there will be murder. I know. Take this is the death threat right now. That's what I know. Trust me. I know. I know there will be knives and murder, blood. There really will. Okay, PK, carry on. Absolutely. Luann Thibodeau wants to know: Do you see the state of affairs in present-day Russia and the Ukraine as similar? And do you think there will be some sort of unsung heroes or hero or heroes that will emerge from that uh, conflict? Uh, I'll answer just briefly. Uh, I mean, it's always a little dangerous to, you know, to draw direct comparisons between two different situations in, in history 50 years apart. Uh, so obviously there are many differences, but what you do have in common is a larger power, uh, you know, uh, preemptively striking another power um, and, and trying to take over. And uh, in both cases, the larger power was, was sure that it would be an easy victory. And in both cases, that turned out not to be the case. And the and the supposedly weaker power decided they were gonna fight back. And um, uh, that's kind of the situation uh, we see now with, uh, with Russia and Ukraine. And uh, beyond that, hesitate to draw too many parallels, but they're certainly there if, if you wanna find them. And Brad and I, when we started writing this book, as you said, had no idea that this would be occurring, but there are aspects of the history that we feel like we're kind of just watching all over again but maybe with some with the players reversed. We had a really nice comment from Linda Sue Brown, and she says, uh, you know, basically thank you for uh, giving us this history and an insight in these wars. She says this is something that we really need right now in order to kind of explain a little bit of American history, I think. And uh, she's just really grateful for the books that you gentlemen have written. Um, and um, I had one final question that was really more of a comment. Um, and thanks, thanks to the whoever wrote that previous comment. That's very kind. Uh, oh, uh, George Conrad said, "Brad, my mom is Tara Conrad. You donated to her book box fundraiser, and she just wanted to say hi." Uh, <laughs> that's a great way to end. But did I? I called. I said, "We have the nicest readers. I know every every author has readers." but no one is nicer than ours. We do a thing, um, and those on the virtual know it, because I know so many wrote to me and said they were coming to virtual. We, we do a thing where our readers can cut the line. We give them a cut the line pass. So when they come to Poison Pen or wherever it is, if they're a member of our kind of little secret society, they can cut the line. And what's so amazing is I travel around the country. I go to all these events, and Josh and I do these events together. We're doing one tomorrow in New York City. Um, and you'll, And you won't believe how many of our readers We'll just be at the end of the line and they'll show me that they have the card and they cut the line, you know, pass secret password. And I'll always say, why didn't you use it? And they're like, well, I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to cut anybody. 
I will take anyone's readers in a kindness contest. Ours will whoop them, anybody's. So thank you to every single person out there. I also need to say, and Barbara's heard me say this, and I feel like we've done 10 events together. Um, thank you for supporting Poison Pen. Every time you buy a book, you vote. And I know it's easy to kind of go online sometimes, but not only does Poison Pen have autographed copies from us, uh, which is wonderful and I love her for it, but um, you know, the community is so lucky to have Poison Pen and the amazing people like PK who work there. There's a giant staff there that you're not seeing right now who make it happen. And Barbara, we so appreciate you supporting new voices. That's how you get different voices than what you see all the time. And it is, has been appreciated by me personally for 26 years now together. So thank you to every person out there and, and we appreciate you buying books from Poison Pen. Well, thank you very much. And that that's a very nice comment from Brad, who lives near one of the world's really great bookstores called Books and Books in Miami. Um, but, you know, isn't it interesting that we can have a world in which, you know, we can participate all around the country and, in fact, all around the globe? Do you know that 70% of our customers don't live in Arizona? And I know because you've told me, but I don't think, I, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. But well, again, a testament to you because, you you know, you, you know, you have so many relationships with authors that you can get people to come and uh, it, it is, you, you know that your, your reputation precedes you at every level. Well, that's very kind. I was merely going to say that technology is really what makes it possible. And while the pandemic did many terrible things, one of the great things it did was teach us all how to get onto Zoom so that we can have these kinds <laughs> of conversations. No, I'm not kidding. You know, I mean, the, the world is evolving all the time everywhere. And one of the places that's also evolving is in publishing and in bringing authors to readers. And, you know, this is a new tool that we didn't have that has made it possible to do a great many things. I will conclude by telling you, you'll love this since you were plugging an event you're doing tomorrow. I'm doing one on Monday at two o'clock. And when, I won't mention who the publisher is, but the author's in New Zealand. And the publisher wrote and asked me if I could support this author by writing a Indie Next nomination and so forth. And I love New Zealand. I've been there several times. So I agreed. And after I'd submitted it, I wrote back to the publisher and I said, you know, now that I've done all that, wouldn't it make sense for me to like actually talk to the author and do an event? And the publisher said to me, well, you can't do that. He's in New Zealand. And so I paused for a moment <laughs> and I said, well, actually I can. I said, the only thing hard about Zoom is time zones. Once you master time zones, you can Zoom with anybody anywhere in the world. And I said, it will be the next day in New Zealand. And, you know, we can do all that. So, in fact, we are going at 2 o'clock uh, tomorrow afternoon. Michael Bennett, who's a Maori author and really has a great book about the indigenous people of New Zealand, but it's in a, a modern political thriller. Um, You're proving my point, Barbara, that new voices yeah. really, we appreciate it. But what I love is the fact that we can do it, you know, regardless of who it is, anybody can, in fact, do it. So it's wonderful. We've kept you long enough. I'm sure you want to go out and enjoy New York while you're there, Times Square. Thank you, Brad. And Josh, what a pleasure to meet you. Um, pleasure to meet you too. We'll see you here again. And Brad, go on tour. I'm glad that you are feeling great again. And uh, yeah, I was saying, but yeah, I had, Barbara knows because we were texting before earlier. Uh, I spent my December with COVID. So that was a thrill. Yeah. But now it means I can go on tour and not worry about COVID. So all according to plan, I guess. <laughs> exactly. I'm really glad for you because it would have been terrible to have had to revise your tour. Anyway, good night, everybody. Thank you so much for joining Thanks, us. Everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Hello.
We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.